0: Well, church family, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Ryan Epley, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at the church. Um, it's an amazing privilege to do that, and always look forward to opening God's Word with you. And we're going to be continuing our series of the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 7 this morning. So if you want to grab your Bibles and make your ways there, make your way there. and. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you today, you can look underneath the chairs in front of you to your left or to your right. There should be a black book, which is uh, the Word of God, and you can pull that out and turn to page 892. That's where we're going to be on page 892, um, John chapter 7. And as you find your way there, I'll just tell you a little bit about me. I, I grew up uh, with two older sisters, which led to a lot of lively arguments and a lot of healthy debates a lot of immature pride, a lot of funny times. And so there was one time that I was debating, um, arguing uh, with my oldest sister over vegetables. Of all all things, uh, we're arguing whether what is before us is an orange carrot or whether it is a hot pepper. And uh, I am arguing that it is a carrot and my sister's arguing that it's a pepper. So we're just going back and forth. I'm saying, no, that's not it. And we're just butting heads over this and there were no adults around to solve this problem for us. So finally, my sister says, if that's really what you believe, then basically put your money, money where your mouth is and take a big bite of this. So what I did is I grabbed this carrot carrot, and I took a giant bite out of this carrot and it lit my mouth on fire. <laughs> it was like for the next few days, the inside of my mouth was sunburned. Is how bad it was. And what it, what it comes down to is, I had this belief that it was a carrot and it led me to act as if it was a carrot. And what our beliefs do is they lead us to action and right beliefs lead us to right actions. Wrong beliefs lead us to wrong actions. And why do I tell you all this? Because in this text today, what we see are many people who believe different thoughts about Jesus, many of them wrong beliefs that lead to wrong actions and just one, which is the right belief that leads to everlasting life. And this is important. What we believe about Jesus is hugely important. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Listen to that again. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But why? Because what we believe about God changes how we live. It changes who we marry. It changes where we work. It changes how we spend our money. It changes how we spend our time. What we believe about God Drastically changes all of our lives. And so we've got to get it right. We've got to make sure that we have the right beliefs. So, here in John 7, what you'll see are many different views, different beliefs, different thoughts on Jesus. And I believe that you will be able to relate to one of these four different thoughts or beliefs about Jesus. So, look with me in John chapter 7, verse 1. This is a long text. We're looking at 31 verses, so just stick with me. It's a really good text, but it's a a long text. So read along with me. John chapter seven, verse one, it says this. But after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So the brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may also see your works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known open If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse five, four, not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about its works that they are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for My time is not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he went also, not publicly, like his brothers wanted him to, but not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. And others said, no, 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 no. He's leading people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do the father's will, he will know whether whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowds answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from and where the, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. So they, seek, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet, many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's pray. Take a moment now just to pray that God would speak to you this morning through His Word. Take a moment to pray for me that I would communicate God's beautiful Word clearly. Oh, great God. We thank you that you are small enough to hear our prayers and great enough to answer them. Lord, I ask today that you would help correct our thoughts about you. Lord, your word claims to love you with all of our minds. And so, Lord, help us to do that. And Lord, may it affect our hearts and our hands as we live for you. God, may we believe rightly and act rightly about you. It's in Christ's great name we pray. Amen. So in this text, we see a really busy place, a really crazy time. It's the Feast of Booths, which is um, where all of the nation would gather around to remember what God had done in the book of Exodus. Years ago, they, would, uh, they were wandering through the wilderness and God protected them. They were nomads at that time. And the Feast of Booths was a time where they would come to the city and they would actually live outside the city. They'd build their own booths with sticks and palm trees and they would live outside to remember How God provided and cared for them earlier. And so we have this huge national holiday for the Jews, and they're gathering all to Jerusalem, and it's a really weird time. It would be like if we had a a time where a Christian conference gathered together with a political campaign that gathered together with a state fair. Like that's what's going on. You have all these different views and all these different beliefs and all these different peoples from all these different places. And they all have different thoughts and different beliefs about Jesus. It's a really weird time. There's a lot of chaos going on. But in the midst of this chaos, what we see are the different views and how Jesus speaks specifically to these views. And the first one we see here is that some people believe that Jesus is useful, but not Lord. Some believe that Jesus is useful, but not Lord. And this view comes from a shocking place that we never would guess. In verse three, it says, his brothers say to him. Now, hold on, let's just pause right there. This is Jesus' brothers. This is his family. These are people that grew up with Jesus. They would would know Jesus really well. They would know Jesus' favorite color, right? They'd know what Jesus loved to eat. They would know all these memories of Jesus and things that Jesus had done. They would know that Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. They would know all these things because they had lived years with him. And not only are they brothers, but they're saying, we believe in your miracles. They want him to go up to Judea. They want him to go up to Jerusalem to show off his works. We want you to go up there and do a couple miracles, Jesus. And you really need to right now because where we left off last week at the end of chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he starts saying things that are a little hard to understand. He's saying things like, if you want to have salvation, if you want to find satisfying life, then you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And it says that the crowds literally left. They departed from Jesus because of these tough sayings that he was saying. So the brothers say, Well, you know what, Jesus, this is a good rally point. Everybody's already up there in Jerusalem. So why don't you just go up there and work these miracles, work your magic? And then all these people are gonna turn back to you and follow you and we'll amass the crowds again. And what they're doing is they're trying to build up their own fame by association. They wanna be able to say, hey, that's my half brother, Jesus, right there. You know, we have a different dad. His is the heavenly father, but that's okay because, you know, we still have Joseph who, who adopted Jesus into our family. And so, you know, we, this is our brother right here. You know, like they're gonna, they're gonna serve us because they're ultimately serving him. So what they're doing is they're using Jesus. They're using him like a vending machine to get what they want. They see Jesus like a pinata to break open and to get all the things that they desire, all the goodies they want. And this desire to use Jesus for selfish reasons is really a desire of unbelief. There's really no saving faith in this. And that's why the author drops this huge bomb in verse five where he says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. From the outside looking in, you'd say, they know Jesus really well, they're close to him and they believe in his works, so they must be saved. And John says, no, they didn't even believe in the Christ. They didn't even believe that he was Lord. They were using him for their own self-promotion. Charles Spurgeon uh, used an illustration once that uh, he told of a king, a gardener, and a nobleman. And he said, one day the, the gardener had dug up one of the largest carrots he had ever grown. And so he took it and he brought it before the king and he says, king, I have been farming for years and this is the best carrot that I've ever grown and I just wanna give it to you, old king, because there's nothing better that I could ever give you because I will never grow something so fine again the gardener turns to walk away and the king stops and says, gardener, I want to give you a huge plot of land that you could continue to cultivate and to grow and care for the land. Well, nobleman hears of what happened. He says, well, I've got something way better than vegetables to give the king. So he comes in the very next day and he says, oh, great king, I've got this stallion and it's the nicest stallion that I've ever had in my, my fold. And so I want to give you this stallion, oh, great king. And so he gives the stallion to the king and he waits. And the king, seeing his heart and knowing his selfish motive, just says, thank you. And the nobleman's perplexed. And he says, king, I, I don't understand. Yesterday, this, this gardener came in and, and gave you something and you gave him all this land. And I, I give you this nice stallion, the nicest in all the nation. And, and you give me Nothing. And the king responds to the nobleman and says, the gardener came to give me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. He knew that the man was using the king to get what he wanted. And Jesus, King Jesus, knows that his brothers are using him to get what they want. So he says, I'm not gonna go up like you desire. I'm gonna go up privately I'm not gonna go up and work all these miracles like you want me to. I'm gonna go up and I'm going to teach. I'm not gonna work miracles, I'm gonna teach. So he comes up in a whole different way. He comes up in a whole different light. Now for us, we sh- that struggle with this tendency to try to use Jesus instead of serve Jesus as Lord, it's maybe not the same that the brothers did because honestly, in our culture today, claiming to know and to love Jesus doesn't necessarily build your popularity doesn't necessarily take you up the ladder. But I feel like our heart and our guilt, though it's rooted in this using Jesus, looks a little bit different. I think it looks in one or two ways. I think we either view Jesus as a security guard or we view Jesus as a school teacher if we're using him. And what I mean by that is we view Jesus as a security guard in the sense of, We want to live our lives and we want to build up our kingdom. We want to work our jobs. We want to build up our finances. We want to build up our family. We want to do whatever we want to do and and build our whole kingdom up. And then what we want to do is we want to ask Jesus, Jesus, we want you now to be the security guard to protect the kingdom which I have built. I want you to protect it. I don't want to lose my health, my wealth, and my happiness. So Jesus, come in and protect it. And that's a broken Belief, which leads to wrong actions. When we believe that Jesus is Lord of all, we stop trying to build our own kingdom and we look to Jesus to build his kingdom. And that's the kingdom he'll protect. We should look to worship Jesus, not have him worship us. So if we struggle with this, of using Jesus instead of seeing him as Lord, we see him as a security guard or we see him as a school teacher. And what I mean by that is we oftentimes, we leave the church um, when we don't have kids and then we come back when we have kids because once we have kids, we want to make sure our kids are raised up to be good moral kids, right? And so we come back to church and we're like, all right, Jesus, it's your job now to fix my kids. So raise them up to be good moralists. We wanna drop them off at the school so that, that they can be trained up by the school teacher to live rightly. Now, now don't misunderstand me with this. Like, I, I want my two children to be moral children, but I don't want them to be moralists. I want my children to be worshipers of Jesus. And if we come back into this and think, Jesus, we just want you to to raise up our kids the way we want to so they'll be good kids and they'll obey us and they'll hopefully live good lives. We're missing the whole point of life. Jesus is the point of life. We are called to worship him, not have him serve us. We are called to glorify him and lift him high. Jesus is the chief end of man. The whole point of why we live and breathe and move is to glorify him. So we wanna train up our children to worship and to serve Jesus, not to use Jesus but to see him as Lord and Savior. Now, what's so amazing about this is there's even hope in this section. And the only way we know this is because we know the bigger parts of the Bible. Because this is Jesus' brothers who don't believe. This is Jesus' brothers that are using him. But one of his brothers is James, who we find out later after Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that he believes. God takes his wrong belief and he makes it a right belief to see him as not just something you use, but the Lord in whom you serve. And James later writes one of the books of the New Testament where he says, church, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. I think that the reason why he says that is because he knew better than anybody else. He had heard Christ speak. He had heard Christ teach, and yet he didn't believe. He was deceiving himself the whole time. But Christ changed his heart. He took out his heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh. And so we have great hope that if we look into our hearts and we see that we've been using Jesus instead of loving Jesus, that Christ can change that, that belief. He can change our hearts and give us hope. He can change our hearts and give us the right belief that leads to eternal life. And so some see Jesus as useful in this text. Others see him as good, but not God. We see this in verse 12, where it's saying, they're all talking, they're all murmuring here in this this Feast of Booths time. And one group is saying that he is a good man in verse 12. He's good, but he's not God. He's good, but he's not claiming, or he's not really doing what he said he would do. And this is really interesting that they're claiming he's a good man, but he's not God because this is an impossible statement. We can't say that Jesus is good over here and not God. And the reason why is because of the claims that Jesus made. Jesus made bold claims, specifically saying that he was God. Even here in in the gospel of John, John, In chapter eight, so the next chapter we look at, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Abraham was the Old Testament father of the faith that was thousands of years before the time of Christ. So like, wait a second, you're saying you were before? Before Abraham, this dude that lived thousands of years ago? What what are you talking about, Jesus? And then he says, before Abraham was, I am. And this is the word that God gave Moses when Moses asked, When I go and I talk to Pharaoh, who am I supposed to tell him sent me? And God responds and says, tell him that I am sent you. Jesus is using the very personal name for God, Yahweh, I am. He's claiming to be God. And some skeptics will say, well, this is the gospel of John. So these don't really count because this was a later gospel. It was the latest one written. And because it was written so late, then They just really kind of manipulated it and made Jesus God at that time. Well, you can go to every one of the gospels, any of the three synoptic gospels and prove that Jesus claimed to be God. You can go to the the shortest gospel, the gospel of Mark, which some believe was the first gospel written. You don't have to make it very far. In chapter two, Jesus looks at this man and heals him and says, your sins are forgiven. And the crowd gets in this uproar and they're all angry. And they said, wait a second, who can forgive sins but God alone? He's blaspheming. And Jesus' response is, that's my point. Only God can forgive sins. And I'm telling you that this man's sins are forgiven. And then we see as Mark continues to unfold, all these things that the Old Testament talked about that only God could do, Jesus does. Only God can control the weather. And what does Jesus do? He speaks and calms the storm. The reason why is because he's the one that spoke him into existence at the very beginning. He speaks to sickness and death and they flee. He speaks to demons and they obey. All these things are pointing to Christ's claims are true, that Christ is God. And there's such a huge divide. There's such a huge rift between Jesus being just a good man and Jesus being God, because a good man will tell you that's the way to find God. There it is over there. That's the way. And Jesus says, I am God. A good man will say, well, here's what you do to reach God. And Jesus says, I've already done everything for you to reach God. I've come down, I am here, I am God. There's a huge difference between the two, between a good man and God. And Jesus is claiming time and time again that he's not just a good man, but that he is God. And if we say that Jesus is just a good man, what we do is we call Jesus a liar. And I don't know about you, but... If you've ever caught somebody in a lie, I mean, have you ever caught a, a family member or a friend or coworker lying directly to your face and you know they're lying? And how many of you, you guys in that moment have thought, this is a really good man. Like, look at him lying to my face right now. This is great. Nobody has thought that somebody lying to your face is a good person. So why do we take that logic and try to apply it to Christ? Why do we take that logic and say, well, he lied a lot, but he was a good man. It's not true. He was a good man, but he was much, much more than that. He was God, 100% man, 100% God. And you cannot separate these things. It is impossible to separate God from Jesus, Jesus from God. It's impossible to separate Jesus being a good man from Jesus being God. It would be like, if, if we try to do that, it would be like, us today, you remember several months ago when we elected Brian as our, our next lead pastor? We filled this room up and Brian had gone out there and we, we voted in here that we were gonna elect um, Brian as our next lead pastor. Now, could you imagine if we brought Brian back in here and we said, Brian, we've got great news for you and we have bad news for you. The first news is that we've elected Brian as our next lead pastor. The bad news is, is we don't want Frost. We don't want the Frost, but we want Brian. Now, Brian would be so confused. Wait a second, like, I am Brian Frost. They're one and the same. I'm from the Frost family and my name is Brian. Like, you can't pick one or the other. I'm the same one. It's confusing. But that's what we do with Jesus. We say, teacher, come on in, but God, stay out. Healer, come on in, but Lord, we don't want anything to do with you. And it's confusing. When we see him as good but not God, that's what we're doing, and this cannot happen. Because when we hold this belief, that we hold this view, this wrong view that Jesus is good but he's not God, what it will do, the response, the reaction that we'll have is we'll respect Jesus, but ultimately we will reject Jesus. We'll listen to Jesus, but we won't obey Jesus. Because after all, we justify and say, he's just a good man. He's not God that speaks into our life. And what blows me away with this is I read the gospels. You see all of creation submitting and obeying Christ. Think about it. He speaks to the wind and the waves and immediately they calm down. He speaks to the demons and they obey him. He speaks to death and sickness and they flee. And yet he looks at man and he says, obey me, love me. And we look back at him in all of our pride and audacity and say, no, no. We're the only part of creation that struggles to obey the king. And we try to justify it away by saying, well, he's good, but he's really not God. But when we rightly believe that Jesus is God, we must obey him like all of creation. When Jesus speaks into what marriage is, when he speaks into what gender roles are, when he speaks into manhood and womanhood, we obey whether we disagree or not. You know why? Because he's the creator. He's the designer. He's the one that made these things to be certain ways. And so we obey. When he says to to change jobs, when he says to share the gospel with this person, it's not up for debate, it's up for obedience. So some people in this text see Jesus as useful, but not Lord. Some see him as good, but not God. And the third group see him as the deceiver and not the deliverer. Others see Jesus as a deceiver instead of the deliverer. And this goes back to verse 12 again where it says he's leading the people astray. And then in verse 20, they're hearing him teach and they're like, you're demon possessed. What they're ultimately saying there is, Jesus, you're crazy. What are you talking about right now? And what they're, what they're ultimately saying is either Jesus has been deceived by himself or he's deceiving other people. He knows what's true, but he's deceiving other people. He's been fooled or he's fooling others. But either way, he's a deceiver can't be trusted. We can't obey him. We can't follow him because he's really not who he says he is. And as they're saying all these things, Jesus stands up into the temple, stands in the temple and starts to teach. And he says, I'm not deceiving. What I'm doing is I'm teaching of the father. I'm teaching of God's glory. And it's a really kind of confusing sermon that is outlined here in verses uh, 14 through 24, but what he's doing is he's speaking to those that are calling him deceivers. They're like, how are you teaching so well, Jesus? You haven't studied. He's like, because my sermons come from the father. And then he says, you know that because I'm not seeking my own glory right now. I'm actually pointing you to God. I'm, I'm pointing to you to glorify him. But the one who speaks on his own authority in verse 18, it says he seeks his own glory. And what these people are doing that, that are calling Jesus a deceiver, what they're ultimately doing is they're seeking their own glory. They want to be the authority. And Christ says, no, God is the ultimate authority. And they call the people, he calls the people out on two things, which kind of seems odd at the time, but when you look at the full picture, you can see how it's working. He ends it and he talks about circumcision, which is just odd. Jesus, you're ta- why are you talking about circumcision here? this just doesn't seem to fit in what's going on. What was going on in that time is the Jewish people who are calling Jesus a deceiver and a sinner and a liar because he healed a man on the Sabbath. They're like, you've broken the law. And he responds and says, well, you guys have this law that if a child is born on the eighth day, you're supposed to circumcise him. That's that's the law. That's what we do. But the eighth day is, it's the Sabbath. You, you still do the circumcision, right? He's like, if you're not breaking the law, then, then why am I breaking the law when I heal the whole man's body? When I make every part of him well, I heal his body, soul, and spirit. Like I heal all of this. That's what he, that's what he says. And so there's this challenge. And then he, he calls him out and he says, you know, you have the law that's here, but you don't even keep the law. And then he asks him the question, why do you seek to kill me? And the reason why he follows up the statement about you're not even keeping the law and you seek to kill me is because the sixth commandment is this, that thou shalt not murder. And he's like, here I am. A year and a half ago, I healed this man and your animosity continues to build and well. And it's like a huge tidal wave that's about to crash onto Jesus, all because I healed this man. You're seeking to murder me. You're breaking the law. And what Jesus is pointing out here is that, ultimately, there is a deception going on. But it's these men deceiving themselves. They're hardening their hearts to the messages and the miracles of Christ. They don't want to believe because they want to keep the authority to themselves. And what's amazing about this is they would rather remove Jesus and reject Jesus than to change what they believe. They'd rather, rather push him to the side than accept and believe him. And what's amazing is it's not due to a lack of evidence. It's not that Christ has been holding things back from. He, he says, I've done one miracle and you all marvel. But he's done many miracles. He's just pointing back to one that they're the maddest about. He's saying, I healed a man. You saw that and I forgave his sins. You saw that I fed 5,000 people with five loaves, two fish. You're seeing these works. You're hearing my teaching. I'm teaching to you now. And what's amazing is later on in this chapter, these groups of people who see Jesus as the deceiver instead of the deliverer, they send guards to arrest Jesus. And the guards come back and they're like, we're empty-handed. And... The, the, the rulers are like, wait, wait, we told you to go arrest him. Why did you not arrest him? And they're like, well, we heard him speak, and nobody spoke like this before. I mean, he speaks as one that has authority. This is amazing. This is God. Even they come back and they're sharing a testimony with these people like, guys, I don't know what you're seeing, but he's really not a deceiver. He really is who he says he is. He's God. And these people don't want to change, they'd rather remove or reject Jesus than submit and it's not due to a lack of authority, and it hasn't changed for us today. There's an atheist philosopher of our mo- uh, modern time, Thomas Nagel. It's amazing. In his last book, um, The Last Word, he says that, and this is, he sets it up like this. He says that nobody comes to God in a detached way, and he doesn't either. And then he quotes and he says this. I don't want atheism to be tr- true." I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't want to believe in God and I naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. Rather, it's that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to live in a universe that's like that. What Thomas Nagel is, is doing is he's basically quoting scripture. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 18, it says, you have darkened your understanding because your hearts are hardened. And Jesus says, I am the light, but men do not come into the light because they love darkness rather than light. These people at this time don't wanna come into the light because they love their way better than God's way. Thomas Nagel is openly admitting in his book that he doesn't want to believe in a God because it's going to change everything about what he believes and how he lives and he'd rather not be he would rather there not be a God than be one that would change how he lives but it ultimately boils down to this what do you love because they love darkness rather than light it's not just a head knowledge it's a heart thing that they love Their ways more than God's ways. So my question is, how do you know if you fall in this category? Look at what you love. What do you pray for? What do you go to bed at night thinking of? What do you hope to spend your money on? Where do you spend your time? What do you love? That will show you. If you see Jesus as the deceiver or the deliverer. And the hope in this is that he is the deliverer, that he can change the taste buds of our heart if we would ask. He can change the things that we love even if we don't love it now. God can change the taste buds of our heart. These three thoughts, these three beliefs, these wrong beliefs, are all summarized or all the root of these is unbelief. Every one of these, you see Jesus as useful, but not Lord, good, but not God, deceiver and not deliverer. All of them are wrapped up in unbelief. And so why does all this matter? Why do we talk about this today? Because it matters vastly. It's the difference between life and death. If the crowds don't get this right, if they don't get their beliefs fixed, then what's set before them is hell. What's set before them is wrath. They've got to get this right. And some of them do get this right, but it's the same for us. It hasn't changed. We have to have right belief. We have to see Christ for who he is and allow our lives to serve him as Lord. Because if not, that's what is set before us, the wrath of God and hell. So it matters. It deeply matters. So I pray that you find yourself in this last group. It's the smallest section of our text, but in verse 31, it says, yet, yet, many believe that Jesus was Lord. They believe in his signs. They believe in his miracles. They believe in his teaching." I love the question they ask at the end. They're almost challenging those who have disbelief beforehand and they're like, are you thinking that the Messiah that's gonna come is gonna do more works than what Jesus has done? It's not gonna happen. You're not gonna find someone better than Christ. It's not gonna happen. They see Jesus as Lord and they worship him as Lord. And they see that there's no one better than Christ. If you're looking for something better, you will not find it out there. Scottish theologian PT Forsyth said it like this, "If Jesus isn't God, then the God you know is less than the God I crave and less than what the world needs." If Jesus isn't God, then the God you know is less than the God I crave for and less than what the world needs. Jesus is Lord, and when we seek to him and we look to him, we find that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we believe in him, we find freedom. When we rightly believe in him, we find forgiveness. When we rightly believe in him, we find grace. Let's pray. Lord, some of us are in this last group that we do believe. But we seem to drift into one of these other categories. And Lord, if that's us, Lord, we believe, but help us with our unbelief. in Christ, if we find ourselves now in one of these other groups that we know we're not really seeing you as Lord and God and deliverer, Convict us, but more importantly, save us, God. We want you to fix our broken hearts. We want you to fix our broken minds. Lord, we want to rightly believe so that we can rightly live our lives. Lord, you are the chief end of all things. So Lord, may we live for you because you are the only thing worth living for.